my classical music professor is rolling in his grave. Um, no, he's he's still alive. I don't think he's. <laughs> Welcome to an episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cine Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And today is the final part of our director series on the legendary Stanley Kubrick. And Kubrick is a, a genre in himself, is why we discussed him this <laughs> month. But Thomas, what have we talked about in these previous three parts this whole month? What have we talked about regarding Kubrick? Catch everybody up. When, real quick, I'm... I'm when you said he is a genre unto himself, I was about to say he's the only director to have an adjective named after him. But I think there's, prob I think there's no, probably what? Hitchcockian, Kubrickian? Hitchcockian? Yeah. Spielbergian? Spielbergian. Is, I would yeah. go Spielbergian too, yeah. yeah. Um, there's three? At least three. Uh, there's probably some more that I'm blanking on, but those are the three that kind of I'm trying like, to think of like some of the like French New Wave or like you know italian but yeah i don't, I don't think I, and, you're... and you get the idea of like the like malik-esque there's the esque mm, not the yes malik-esque of course malik man of steel how can i forget <laughs> all the reviews calling it malik-esque yes um, but yeah kubrick what we've been talking yeah. about up to this point um we talked about how his background in photography influences his work we we talked about his early days and how he was just kind of always pushing his visuals as far as they could go uh, we talked about his his dark days in studio filmmaking when he kind of lost his flavor and then he just came back hard and that turned into the rest of his career, which is the Kubrickian era, which is where he's just making dense, crazy, detailed, off the wall genre movies that that really just seem to tap right into his brain and sometimes don't make sense and and sometimes are too long or you know whatever you have to say about it but but they're always kind of unabashedly him and and the things that we've kind of found that are him include you know these just incredibly detailed visuals whether it's the production design whether it's something like um Barry Lyndon that's just like almost created like a painting whether it's you know these crazy dolly moves or these sets built around dollies or even the just insanely detailed special effects for 2001 space odyssey from a plot point of view that often means you know leaving a lot of questions unanswered yeah, ambiguous really not really not tying anything up in a bow and i think we'll continue to see that uh this yeah. this week as well very much so and from a themes point of view you know what we've really found here is that he was someone who was staunchly anti-war and really kind of harped on that as much as he could um a lot of his films even the ones that aren't really war films touch on that mm -hmm. and what are what are some what are some other themes from a from a storytelling standpoint a lot of a lot of voiceover a lot, a lot of voiceover narration, narration which I, yeah. I i wouldn't have thought about before we started this uh i i same i was gonna say the exact same thing it's, it's a very very novel like approach to everything which mm -hmm. makes sense because from the killing onward, uh, he all of his movies were based on novels. Mm -hmm. um, I think you mentioned one time earlier in this month, you're like a lot of Kubrick's movies are about characters that get involved in something that's not what's cracked up to be. Yes, they um, they, they they want something. You know, there's there's always the the thing about like wants versus needs, but yeah, 
you know, this idea that, that what a character wants in a story is different than what he needs. And, and a lot of times the lesson of the story will be finding what he, what he needs isn't what he wants. But I, I don't yeah. think as many stories have as, as often as his is like, it's actually getting your hands on, on your want. Cause a lot of times yeah. in stories, it'll be like the pursuit of the want until yeah. you realize the need a lot of his are about getting your hands on the want and then regretting it for, for one reason or another. Yeah. And that could be, uh, I mean, that could be Alex and, and a clockwork orange in a variety of ways, mm-hmm. mainly the experiment that he, he gets involved in. Um, that could be, um, I mean, that's ha- that's today. I think with eyes wide shut and the shining, yes. I think, I think Cruz is just like when he's trying to get to the, the sex party, he's like, yeah, come on, let's, let's just, it's just a party. And then it's like, oh, it's way more than, than that. Mm-hmm. And now it's this whole kind of, uh, journey into, uh, or, or, uh, through the looking glass type thing. All right. So and it's then, definitely Humbert Humbert, uh, yeah. you know, having, having Lolita to him fully and then realizing that she is a, a bratty child and not yes. his, his <laughs> girlfriend <laughs> not his girlfriend yeah. um or if, it, or if it's jack torrance and the shining thinking i'll just get away and have a, a nice long writer's retreat in the mountains <laughs> uh with my family and, um, and of course barry getting you know as close to royalty yeah. as he can get and, and yeah. really just not having a good time with it yeah I mean, even it's like, I mean, I think even uh, not to the same extent, but I think Kirk does and Pat's a glory where it's a guy who uh, is in war to be, I guess, patriotic or whatever, be a patriot. And then it becomes something more and then or becomes something not as ideal. And then you get into the courtroom and it, it keeps going downhill. Even the killing. It's like they, they're robbing a bank or they're robbing a, a, um, a racetrack and it should be easy. And then everything goes to shit very as as they go on. So everything just kind of every, I mean it's that's very much dramatic structure in general of things not going the way it's planned. But it, it's having a lot in in his movies. Um, yeah, the narration part back to that. Like I I I think this week it really kind of with just one movie specifically um, with Full Metal Jacket it that really kind of hammered home the the use of narration in his movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have comments on the narration in Full Metal Jacket, so that's why I think it became more apparent uh, this week. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of what we discussed. It's a lot of stuff. Um, thank you all for following along with us, and let's get into <laughs> the final part, which will, I, I, as I tell Thomas for recording, we'll kind of focus heavily on one specific movie because I think it's his most popular film. I, 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 I feel like, according to Letterbox, it's his most popular film. Um, so, after the release of Barry Lyndon at the end of 1975, Stanley Kubrick was in an interesting predicament. Uh, for someone that has been lauded and has continued to be lauded as a filmmaker that was an artist, he was still a filmmaker who wanted his movies to make money. Uh, Warner Brothers had hoped that Barry Lyndon would be a hit for the studio, uh, and, who, and Kubrick hoped for the same, but the film was a disappointment financially, grossing only $20 million against its $12 million budget, which was not expected uh with a box office star like ryan o'neill apparently Mm -hmm. yeah that was something that that came as a surprise to me when we were doing our our standalone eyes wide shut episode yeah you know so many people now that he's kind of passed and has become this enigmatic person so many people were like oh the studio cut interfered with kubrick's vision and like 
everyone who was around him was like his vision was making money like he he yeah. he he wasn't one of those people who'd put a movie out and was like i don't care if people see it like he still wanted people to see his movies yeah. and, and like them yes it's like people are like oh he was always an artist first and i'm like i feel like every movie was like yeah i want to make money with this like <laughs> like it's like that's why studios like yo cast a star mm. like if that's barry linden if that's uh and we'll talk about this the shining some too with kind of his casting choices like he always was looking at ways to like make it a big movie i think maybe because 2001 has like no one big in it mm-hmm. is why people think that um but i feel like it's the exception to what he would do throughout most of his career um so yeah so after that was a disappointment, Kubrick began looking for something that was both commercially commercially viable uh, and also artistically fulfilling. He began to set his eyes on the horror genre. Now, this was a genre that, for the most part, had been looked down upon by critics, but in the late 1970s, horror was beginning to rise in both the claim and box office. Steven Spielberg had released Jaws in 1975, becoming a massive sensation, launching Spielberg as this young filmmaker that Hollywood should be looking at while John Carpenter hit it big with Halloween in 1978. But you also had movies like the exorcist, which was a movie that Kubrick had turned down when offered to direct in the early Mm. 1970s. Um, You also had filmmakers like David Lynch, Brian De Palma, David Cronenberg, Dario Argento, who were on the rise with their early horror films. Horror was developing a fandom and it seems Stanley want to take part in that. And, and it's not like he was... Com- I mean, there are, there are definitely horror elements in 2001. Um, yeah. So it's not like he was completely new to the idea. I, I think even Clockwork Orange has horror elements yes. in, yeah. in, it, in it, too. Um, so, yeah, it's like he, he knew how to build tension for a horror scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and when talking about horror films, uh, Kubrick stated, there's something inherently wrong with the human personality. There's an evil side to it. One of the things that horror stories can do is show us the archetypes of the unconscious. Unconscious. We can see the dark side without having to confront it directly. Legend has it that Kubrick got his staff to bring in large stacks of horror books, which is not surprising (laughs) because, as I said, every movie he made after Killer's Kiss was based on a book. His goal was to read every, every book he could find until he found the right book to adapt for the screen. Every time Kubrick would become tired of a book, he would throw it across the room into a pile. Kubrick's secretary stated that she would hear the book hitting the wall and bounce into the reject reject pile. Most of the time this happened uh, after he only read a few pages, becoming bored very quickly. Finally, one day, the secretary had noticed it had been a while since she had heard a thud. She walked into his office to check on him, and he was reading Stephen King's The Shining. Now how this book got into stanley's hands is kind of all due to warner brothers executive john Kelly. now even though this is his i think first mention in our kubrick series Kelly was a big influence on kubrick's career after the release of 2001 kubrick wanted to move on from mgm and go elsewhere he ended up at warner brothers which is the beginning of the Kelly kubrick relationship they had worked together on a clockwork orange and he was also the one that greenlit barry linden after reading the novel seeing its kind of potential cinematically um, the Exorcist was made under Callie, which is why I believe it was it was offered to Kubrick first. And Callie would also be involved in helping create the film adaptation of Superman. Now, before the publication of Stephen King's The Shining, Callie would get a copy of it and send it to Kubrick to read. At this point, 
uh, King was a best-selling author with the success of Carrie, Salem's Lot, and then the upcoming Shining. Uh, it's believed that The Shining could be a hit at the box office just because of its ties to Stephen King. Uh, also, because of Carrie, the Carrie adaptation that Brian De Palma did was a massive hit in, I think, 76. Um, King would write a draft of the script once the script was optioned by Warner Brothers, but Stanley would reject it, uh, feeling it was too close to the novel. Like many of his earlier films, Stanley decided to take on a collaborator when tackling the script. He chose to work with writer Diane Johnson. Uh, while researching the horror genre, Kubrick read a book written by Johnson called The Shadow Knows, a psychological novel about a young woman who is under stress because she believes she might be being stalked by an unknown person, or she might not be. It's all kind of unclear. Um, Kubrick, which might sound very familiar when we talk about The Shining. Uh, Kubrick also loved that she was a professor of Gothic studies, is what it was, I believe. Hmm. Um, according to Johnson essay in a Scraps in the Loft, she believed Kubrick wanted to work with a novelist that didn't write the original novel because they wouldn't be precious uh, with the actual story, but they understood the structure of a story. He felt novelists were better storytellers than screenwriters, which was something Johnson was not. Um, she would agree to write with Kubrick, and she would soon travel to London where he was living. Uh, she took the advice of Terry Southern, who is the co-writer of Dr. Strangelove, mm -hmm. to stay somewhere somewhere off of Kubrick's estate, uh, off Kubrick's estate, uh, to where he didn't take over and run her life. He could actually, actually have a life <laughs> outside of it. Um, she would rent an apartment in the city and be driven in every day to work with Kubrick. They would spend the mornings face-to-face -face across a table in a big room discussing uh, the, the story. Johnson said they began by deconstructing King's novel separately, reducing it to their its essential scenes before comparing their list of scenes they thought were important for the story. Um, she would also cut out pieces of exposition and dialogue from a paperback copy of the novel, placing them in the envelope that was designated for each section of the film that actually broke it down to eight sections. In the afternoon, she would say Kubrick would spend most of the time prepping for production, handling casting, reviewing plans for sets, costumes, music, etc. Um, Johnson says that he would allow his family to comment on the things he was doing in prep, like the choice of costume for a specific character or the way a set was looking. Uh, Johnson said she even gave her thoughts on a bathroom set specifically for the film, commenting on how the tiles were done up too high in the shower. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> in the evening, Johnson and Kubrick would usually have dinner together, I guess probably with his family as well. They would sometimes watch old horror movies, Jack Nicholson movies, and even attended a few shows in Weston before Johnson would go back home for the evening. It would take 11 weeks to complete the production draft of the script. Don't worry, it will change. <laughs> and now, speaking of casting, let's talk about that. So Kubrick said that Jack Nicholson was always the first choice, but he did consider three other actors. Uh, Robert De Niro, I think he said he watched Taxi Driver and thought that he wasn't psychotic enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, De Niro said that he was like terrified by the movie once it came out. Um, another actor that Kubrick thought about was Robin Williams, mm. but thought he was too comedic after seeing Mork and Mindy. Yes. Uh, and the third name he considered was Harrison Ford. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Stephen King disapproved of all three. And he also disapproved of Nicholson as well. And, yeah, I'd heard that. He, he thought that Nicholson was too crazy to begin with. And he didn't see a descent into madness uh, like he hoped. Um, 
but Kubrick had the final say according to his contract. King would, however, suggest certain actors like John Voight, Christopher Reeve, and Martin Sheen as possible casting choices for Jack Torrance. Hmm. Um, but King was told pretty early on the actor for the lead role was non-negotiable. Um, once Nicholson was cast, he suggested casting Jessica Lange to play his wife, Wendy Torrance, but Kubrick would cast Shelley Duvall. Um, Duvall, I think, would later state that she received a phone call from him offering her the role, and she said that she loved the way she cried, is what it was. Hmm. Was was a reason why he loved her acting. Um, had had Duvall the, done much outside of Altman the, at this point? Like she was. Yes, that was my next thing. So Duvall uh, had only basically had only worked with Robert Altman at this point. Yeah. She, she made her first six films with Altman. Uh, she was briefly in Annie Hall in 1977 mm -hmm. as a as a date of Woody Allen. I think she's in like two scenes in that movie. Um, this was her eighth film as an actress and and from all accounts i've ever heard of robert altman a, an extremely friendly yes director for an, an actor friendly director very collaborative set very yeah. much just like chilling out and like because i know he i know one of the big things he would do is like i know during shortcuts altman would like basically let everyone come to dailies and it was actually like an event where like you brought you had food you had catering everyone just kind of showed up and kind of had a good time watching the movie you were making <laughs> and like also just smoking a lot of weed i think probably in the 70s at that point was what was happening so and also you got to take into account this is actually her first film in three years so her last film was in 1977 she hadn't made a movie uh in that amount of time and now the finding the child actor to play danny uh, would actually prove to be difficult. Uh, Kubrick would initially wanted to cast an actor by the name of Carrie uh, Guffey, who starred as one of Richard Dreyfuss and Terry Garr's children in Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Mm -hmm. However, his parents not allow him to be in it because they thought it would be too gruesome. Um, Kubrick would then send uh, Leon Vitale, the actor who played Lord Bullington and Barry Lyndon, and his future assistant, to go out and find an actor to play the role. Leon and his wife, Kirsty toured Chicago, Denver, and Cincinnati, looking at over 5,000 child actors in a six-month period, 5,000 boys in a six-month period. The reason these cities were chosen uh, was because they were trying to find someone who could match the accents of, Dick, of Nicholson and Duvall. Uh, Nicholson had a New Jersey accent, and Duvall had a, uh, uh, Duvall had a Texas accent, so they were looking for a kid with something that was in between. <laughs> they ended up finding Danny Lloyd in the Chicago area, and they chose him because he could maintain his concentration for extended periods of time. I realized I never asked you, Thomas, what is The Shining about as I was <laughs> going through all that stuff? But it, it leads in perfectly for our favorite scene. So what is The Shining about? What Thomas? is The Shining really about? It's yeah, a great it's question. A, it's a, is it about Native American lands? Is it about... Um, uh, faking the moon landing faking the moon landing there's a lot of different things uh, but yeah the shining is about uh, a writer jack torrance who has a lot of demons is a recovering alcoholic is is possibly abusive but is really trying to make a make a new start of things and and part of that new start is taking the caretaker job at an abandoned not, not abandoned as in running down but a uh a, a hotel up in the mountains of Colorado that closes down for the winter. So they just need someone to stay there and look after it while, while it's closed. 
And so he thinks it's going to be a great way to work on his book because he's a writer and his family's going to love it. They have a, a young son named Danny and his wife, Wendy, and they're all going to go live in this like luxurious hotel and have a great time. But the hotel has a dark past and whether or not evil forces are at work or whether Jack's just losing it, um, he begins to slip into violent insanity. Yeah. A lot of ambiguity in this movie, yes. I think. And in, in terms of horror movies at this time, it's a very much different for its era. Um, so, yes, the, the production would start in England after the sets and costume and casting had already been made. So let's let's talk about favorite scenes here. Because I, I this this my history, of this this is like this is the Kubrick film I said earlier that I watched first in my mm-hmm. history of Stanley Kubrick. Um so what's i guess what's one of your favorite scenes in this movie um i mean anything with danny really he, he this kid is fantastic i think only did two movies this one and one other one that's all i did but you know obviously there, there's just so many intense visuals in this film that that have become iconic and obviously the grady sisters are are great but all the all the big wheel stuff is so good when he's riding yeah. the big wheel and the sound design of the the going over the hardwood going over the carpet and and just falling right along behind him and 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 you never really know what's going to be around the next corner there's just this kind of growing sense of dread every time he turns another corner that there's going to be something there yeah and it it's and like as a as a kid at that point when i saw that movie i I was probably thinking like wow what a playground that is that's just to be like (laughs) driving a big wheel around that entire uh that entire massive just as a massive set but at that point like massive hotel mm-hmm. um yeah it's the 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 overlook the stuff with the overlook in terms of what they do with the set it really adds to that like impending doom or a sense of dread that is kind of running throughout this mm-hmm. movie and i think when watching this movie this time i I looked at it more as like a family drama than a horror film. Mm. Like when watching it from the beginning, specifically when, when you see kind of uh, Danny, Wendy and Jack kind of all together in the car for the first time. And I was like, there's a real big tension in this family. Yes. Like some people commented that like, oh yeah, they it's like they were a family. But I was like, when you watch this, like there's they seem like a family for one, but it's just like a tense relationship. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's a great the the scene when he goes to the bar for the first time and and you know has has the vision of of Lloyd. But when when he's headed into that bar and he's just kind of muttering to himself, but that that really gives you the key to like everything that's been happening in this movie. You know, he's yeah. like, I got drunk and I hurt the kid one time and yeah. she's never let me live it down. And like, it, it's obviously driven a wall between all of them. Yeah. Danny's awkward around him now. Wendy's awkward around him now. And even if it was purely unintentional, like you can't, it's very obvious. They can't turn back from that. Yeah. Like it's, it's the, the scene that hit me. It's like, you have that kind of, Cause like, cause Jack is not really a loving father to Danny throughout mm. most because <laughs> of that tension, because of that tension. I mean, yeah, it's like, yeah, other stuff later on in the movie, but like because of that tension, cause the scene too that I saw is like, 
when 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 Jack and Wendy are being like toured around the place. Mm-hmm. Like Wendy's trying to be the like, oh, this is a great this is a great kitchen or this is a great I love oh let's let's have a party or she's trying to be like fun and lively and Jack is just kind of like not really into that as much. Yeah. No. And then Danny shows up and, and Danny just runs straight to Wendy. Mm-hmm. And Jack like makes a comment like oh, you, you done you done storming or whatever he says to him, like to like kind of make a joke or whatever. And Danny's just like no and like walks like walks to, to wendy like there is just this tension between him and danny and kind of the only kind of like moment they have in the movie is like when danny sees jack just like sitting on the bed or whatever mm. and he sits next to him but like there is this tension and you have someone like shade of our wendy who's like trying to like make it better the entire oh, time yeah. And Jack is such a, you know, outside of outside of the last half hour of the movie, Jack is such a toxic person. Yes. Regardless, because we only ever see Wendy doing upkeep around the hotel. She's doing all the upkeep and he's sitting at his typewriter. And then when she's like, you know, I think I think Danny's sick. I think we need to, to get him out of here, go see a doctor. And he's like, do you understand the responsibilities that I have to this hotel. And it's like, you don't understand that you haven't done any of them. You're just typing away. Yeah, she and checks nothing. the the furnace and, and, and makes the calls and, and all that stuff. Yeah. You see her doing the daily activities of like, said, like, like talking to the guys up in the, like the, the, the patrol or whatever, like cooking the lunches, cooking the dinner. Like she's taking care of all the stuff around the place. And Jack's just like throwing a tennis ball against the wall <laughs> and trying to write. And writing nothing. And writing nothing. Um, and and Wendy is like, and and again, you see these kind of these certain scenes that show this divide. I think one big one I thought of is she's comes up to him. As I guess it's like when she's like when he's trying to write, and she's like, "Oh, like, do you want to go for like a walk later?" Mm-hmm. And he's like, "No, I'm really busy. I don't want to do it." And then she ends up taking Danny instead and weirdly mm-hmm. that becomes the thing that saves danny from jack later because yep. jack never walked with his wife yep he couldn't exactly. get out of the maze the thing that kills him is is distancing himself from his yes, family in the first the place entire time um but yeah it's like they just i think duvall is really the backbone of this movie mm-hmm. like when watching it this time like she really comes across for not just the terrified part which everyone kind of talks about but she really comes across this like loving mother to danny like they have a really great kind of chemistry and she talks to him like she's his mom like like which sounds crazy but there's sometimes you watch movies and you're like i can tell this person never had kids before mm-hmm. like in a way but shade of like there's a scene it's the scene when they're running to the maze and she's like i'm gonna get you i'm gonna get you i'm gonna beat you mm-hmm. and like yeah. that's she's so just, good at playing with him she's so good at playing with and, him and, and interacting with um uh uh tony yeah with tony yeah you know it's and just like, like, how, how to deal with these kind of ticks of this child you know it took me several viewings of this movie i the first couple of times because it's just you're so conditioned to like not to like creepy children in horror movies yeah i like didn't even realize tony was a good guy until like, you know. <laughs> until later yeah because he's warning the entire time yeah let's not go there <laughs> yeah 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 th- you know this this viewing of it i think was the first time i was really aware of of the the real battle here is between 
and, and I, this might be the whole point of Dr. Sleep. I still haven't seen Dr. Sleep, but like the real battle here is between whatever force there is at this hotel and Danny, Danny's shine. Yeah. The, the hotel is obviously threatened They're by yeah. Danny's shine. And, and there's something it feels, you know, and that's the thing with, with Kubrick and then the way that he tackled this, because I'm sure having read, I haven't read this one, but having read other Stephen King novels, I'm sure there's some cosmic, you know, uh, centuries old battle between the forces of good and evil that drive this, but you're watching Kubrick and it's just like, this is a drama about a family. Like you said, yeah. And all that, that cosmic good and evil stuff is just kind of in the background. It's there, but it's not the focus. Cause then going into that, what, what, Kubrick kind of does is that he adds this ambiguity to the supernatural because mm-hmm. it's very apparent in, in in King's novel apparently that like uh supernatural is at work here yeah. it's ghost it's this but for the most part there's a few scenes that that, that go the opposite way but Kubrick makes you feel kind of like is it all in Jack's head or yeah. whatever like because a lot of times when Jack's having a conversation with someone there are mirrors around and is he just looking into a reflection of himself and talking to his inner demons in mm-hmm. some way is this just all about a guy being an alcoholic and is seeing his family basically crumble mm-hmm. in front of him well and you know there's i've always heard that that thing that, that king didn't like nicholson because he seemed like he was crazy from the start but i mean is yeah. that from from kubrick's point of view is that not the whole point of the all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy and, and her and, you know, going back and back and back through those pages is seeing that he has always, no matter how crazy he's been acting in the past couple of days, he, he has always been writing this over and over and over again. So is that not yeah. the whole point is that he's, he's been crazy from the start? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know, but I'd say it's, it, it, it becomes like it's, because I think they cut some se- a section like a scene that was in the movie that was like in the book was like Jack finding a scrapbook or something of like newspaper clippings and stuff. It basically told the story of mm-hmm. the hotel. Yeah. And I think that is what like inspires him to write a novel or some kind. But oh. in do but in doing so, it's like he's giving over his soul to the hotel. Mm. And I don't know if that was in the script or they shot it, but I know there was a there was a scene like this and that Kubrick cut it to take away that motivation and to make it more ambiguous of why there's this descent into madness for Jack. Like, is it is it more just his inner demons, basically, mm-hmm. and not Delbert Grady or Charles Grady or it was it mm-hmm. Delbert or Charles? Um, like it, it, it could be anything. Um, yeah. that's doing this except yeah. the few, like the, the few times where like the like delbert helps him get out of the freezer or whatever like, things yeah. like that there's all there's our moments of supernatural mm-hmm. but he really downplays as much as possible yeah. in this movie and, and and then like you said it does turn into this family drama of, of you know ultimately regardless of the supernatural motivations it, this is a man who feels like he has lost control of his family so much and is holding on to traditional ideas of the 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 man of the house the the head of the family that ultimately murdering them is the only way to take back control yeah of the family union yeah um and like a scene to kind of talk with this uh uh with that kind of like 
troubled family is the big scene of when everything kind of cracks open mm. when Shelly finds the all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And then it's the walking back with the baseball bat. Up Windy, the stairs. Windy darling light of my life. I'm not going to hurt you. Yet, let, you me finish. let me finish. <laughs> but when you watch that scene, take away the supernatural element out of it. You see just an abusive husband yeah. is what it is. And you see a woman and a mother, a wife and a mother who's like afraid for her life and her child's life. Yeah. And and something that's been simmering. You know, they had yeah. a they had a glimpse of the possibility of him being abusive once. And and it is what has been festering underneath this facade of a family ever since. Mm-hmm. And and now it's and now it's come to fruition. Now it's now it's the it's fully on on display and yeah uh that i guess that's overall thoughts on kind of the like what this movie's about but like um well if we're if we're talking about that scene i do have to shout out kubrick and nicholson for i think this might be the most every movie it doesn't matter if it's action if it's horror or whatever i it gets on my nerves so much when somebody gets bonked over the head and then they like wake up and they're like good to go this might be yeah. the first movie ever in the history of filmmaking to accurately depict getting knocked out yeah. <laughs> you know and she's like dragging him and his eyes yes. are open but he's like what are you, what's what's going on what are, what are, what are you doing yeah. like that's what happens if you get yeah. hit hard enough to get knocked out you don't just like hop back up <gasps> <Yeah. laughs> and 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 but going into that that scene too like when he gets locked in the freezer like they're kind of again him coming to and and also like again he that's when like you're bordering on like is he possessed in a way and mm-hmm. the way again i think i mentioned this before way kubrick shoots that scene where the camera is like looking up at jack like mm-hmm. this kind of disturbing view and he's talking about like uh uh i got a surprise for you or yeah. whatever when he's telling to wendy and like wit and and duval and the, we'll go into this on on set stuff but like she just looks exhausted like Mm -hmm. she just she looks exhausted and terrified all at the same time well something you know something i was really paying attention to this time because i was trying to remember like from and i've seen this movie you know so many times that you know i i can i can think of individual scenes but heading into it this past time i was like how does halloran sense something's wrong and get to them in time to like be there for the big climax and and that the you think of like the break of like oh she finds his papers he grabs an axe and starts chasing around the house but like yeah the the, the timeline of his like full break is over multiple days yes because i think i feel like they're wearing the same clothes throughout some of these days Mm -hmm. and that's what makes you think it's all like one big day but it's definitely because i was like one part where i was like Oh, they're wearing the clothes they're wearing at the kind of like he's wearing his like red like jacket mm-hmm. and kind of flannel shirt and like oh he's wearing that at the end but then i'm like oh no that he's wearing that over like multiple days yeah but it, it really starts with with danny going into 237 yes and then her kind of having that moment where she kind of betrays her own thoughts and and thinks did you do this and yeah. then he doesn't really come back to the apartment after that you know he he starts spending his time in the bar that's when he 
decides at some point in that time but it it seems like she locks them into the apartment and they maybe at least spend one night just locked in the apartment while he's sabotaging the snow cat and sabotaging yeah. the radio well i know like because because basically he she takes she takes danny away he goes to the bar the first time that's when she interrupts them and like right before that he was having a nightmare when he's like yelling mm-hmm. and you're kind of seeing the descent where he's just like he's telling her like the dream of like he was murdering them and he was like i was like i wasn't just murdering you i was like i was cutting you up in little pieces mm-hmm. like and it was like real and that's and she hears that and then she's danny being kind of choked at or, or the the marks on his face and she thinks it's it's jack but yeah it's like he goes to the bar she comes back and says hey there's someone else in the hotel there's a woman or whatever and then it cuts to him going into 237 him coming back and lying to her saying there was nothing nothing was there that kid's just kind of crazy <laughs> um and that's what he kind of hears like and that's when he goes into uh with the scene with delbert grady mm-hmm. in the bathroom which is yeah. just a chilling scene mm-hmm. and that's when it kind of you find out that like danny has uh tipped off uh uh halloran yeah to come there um and yeah it's and going with the with the character of, of halloran i love the scene with him and danny mm-hmm uh him and danny are great together and kind of talking about the shine and kind of setting up this world um i still don't know how i feel about dick being killed in this movie Mm. because it feels you're spending so much time like getting him there yeah and like following him for him literally just to walk in the door and get killed yep and it, something about it just feels a little off. Like I guess yeah. is it is it an effective fake out, or did they spend yes. a little bit too much time too much on time. it to make it an effective fake out? Yeah, that's the thing. Because like you have him like calling up Tony Burton, um, like him like flying in, him like driving up, and all these different things, and then he just like walks in like hello, and then bam, and that's kind of mm-hmm. it. And like I know it's like you, it's it's weird. It's like you need you kind of need someone to die to i may i guess to really showcase yeah you got you got to set the stakes that jack is jack is capable of murder now yeah but like i i I don't know i i because i know i know in the novel dick doesn't get killed he's alive at the end he actually gets them out of the hotel Hmm. and i think that's why it's kind of like it feels so odd to have this big step as this kind of like hero coming to save them to them just to kind of just be sacrificed for them to get snow cat and to get out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels, it feels a tad bit odd. Um, but Scatman is great in the scenes that he has with, uh, um, with Danny. I think too, they cut some of those scenes for the European release. Cause I think Tony Burton, who's, uh, who's, who's, who's uh, Apollo Creed's uh, manager and Rocky plays uh, Scatman's friend or mm-hmm. uh, um, um, Dick's friend who gives him a snowcat to go up there. Right. I think they cut that scene. So it makes me wonder in the European cut if there is just less of Scatman coming up there. Maybe that works better. Mm. But it's, they're building it up a lot for that to happen. Um, uh, Real quick, I, I cinematography wise, we'll talk about Steadicam a little bit later, but like the opening shots of this movie are just 
insane mm -hmm. when they're coming in and like i think they're in or i think they shot in oregon for like uh second unit stuff um but it's fantastic and i think kubrick from why i remember talking to leon once where in this movie kubrick shoots even though everything's wide he centers everything in this movie mm. because he was aware that tv was becoming a thing and movies movies were being played on tv and he was shooting for tv basically so that's why you see a lot of conversation stuff where everything's being played in the center i just i just i do love when the supernatural stuff does kick in and i love yeah. the way that kubrick chooses to depict it and just the right amount of weirdness sprinkled in to like leave you leave you like questioning all of it because i know yeah. I, I understand like the book has backstories on all of that and kubrick's just like nah just yeah. like you know, what what is more terrifying than seeing a man in a bear suit filleting another man <laughs> when you think that you're completely alone in this hotel? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's 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 interesting and, and I, I do think it's such an interesting adaptation because that imagery is in the book with a lot more backstory. Yeah. And Kubrick was just like, I like that image. Let's make that happen. Don't give him anything else. I just want to see that. Yeah, I think something else they kind of cut, like, it's like the maze, I think it's kind of a thing. But, like, I think in the book, it's like the maze or are, are kind of these, like, kind of uh, shrubbery, like, animals come to life or something. Mm -hmm. And that's completely cut from the movie. Like, yeah, the, it's like it's just enough supernatural to make you be creeped out. Mm -hmm. It's a very yep. much atmospheric kind of piece in a way. Um, but it, it builds to you wondering what's going to happen. And also, again the ending of the movie where it's that ominous pushing on the uh july 4th 1921 mm -hmm. and it's the it has that lingering question oh wait what actually happened to jack was jack always a part of the hotel you've always what, been the caretaker yeah was he consumed by the hotel what was it um but it's just that kind of question mark at the very end to make you go oh <laughs> And I will, and I'll, well, as we get farther in, I'll tell you that there wasn't always a question mark there. It was a little bit more, uh, I guess, concrete. Has it ever occurred to you what would happen to my future if I were to fail to live up to my responsibilities? Has it ever occurred to you? Has it? Stay away from me. Why? I just want to go back to my room. Why? Well, I'm very confused. You've had your whole fucking life to think things over. What good's a few minutes more gonna do you now? Yeah. Stay away from me. Please! Don't hurt me. I'm not gonna hurt you. Stay away from me! Wendy? Stay away! Darling, light of my life. I'm not gonna hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains in. I'm going to bash him right the fuck in. <laughs> so let's talk about the onset part of this production, because I feel like it is seen by many as the most maybe contentious, like most uh, notorious for notorious sure. of Kubrick's career. So let's talk about the sets of this film, because they are insane. The sets were constructed at EMI Elstree Studios, which is about an hour outside of London. The set for the Overlook was the biggest ever built at the studio. 
Wow. Uh, at this point, one of the largest of all time. Uh, to put this in perspective, Star Wars A New Hope was shot there, as was Empire <laughs> Strikes Back. I believe Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark was also shot there. So, a lot of big stuff. They built the full interior and exterior of the hotel, both of which were modeled off of two hotels in the U.S. The interior was almost a complete replica of the Awani Hotel in Yosemite National Park in California, and the exterior was based on the Timberline Lodge in Mount Hood, Oregon. So if you look mm -hmm. both these hotels up, you will see they look exactly like the stuff in the movies. Um, the lobby is the same at the one goes at the at the Awani Hotel. The exterior of the Timberline is they actually use the Timberline uh, in the movie as some of the establishing shots for the Overlook. If you look carefully, you'll notice some of the wide shots of like just the establishing shots of the hotel. There's no maze in it. That's because that's the actual hotel in mm -hmm. Oregon, not the one on set. Um, about halfway through production, a massive fire broke out at the studios, uh, taking off the ceiling of four of the stages and burning down portions of the interior sets, causing there to be a massive delay in production. It would also hurt another production that was on the studio a lot of the time, and that would be Star Wars Empire Strikes Back. The hmm. fire would the fire would force Empire to lose several of its studio stages to The Shining and causing a major delay in that production. Um, when it comes to the cinematography of the film, the, the the aspect of the film is kind of most known for its use of the Steadicam. And for those who don't know, the Steadicam was invented by Garrett Brown, and it was this device that allows you to kind of create stabilized and steady footage with the ability to move it like a handheld camera. The Steadicam mm -hmm. became famous in 1976 when it was used in three films, which were Bound for Glory, Marathon Man, and most famously, Rocky, with the Rocky Steps. Um, but with The Shining, Kubrick contacted Brown in hopes of pushing the abilities of the Steadicam. Brown would say that Kubrick used the Steadicam as it was intended to be used, as a tool which can help get the lens where it's wanted in space and time without the classic limitations of the dolly and crane. Kubrick would use it in tight spaces and low of the ground, which is something that Brown had never done before on a film. And he would even modify the steady cam so the camera could be placed over just inches away from the floor of floor for Danny's big wheel journey through the overlook. Mm -hmm. um, and now the steady cam is used in almost anything that has a budget. Basically uh, if it's commercial music, video film, it's used all the time now just based off, and this, I think this kind of really pushed Steadicam in a new direction. Like, I think the other stuff for those other films were like kind of stunt shots, but Kubrick tries to actually like put it into the the kind of DNA of the movie's visual structure. Yeah. So while on set, the script would constantly change. Uh, Kubrick would usually be writing new versions of the scene the night before or the day of. Um, on the documentary, uh, The Making of the Shining, directed by Stanley's daughter, Vivian, Jack Nicholson would state that he would throw he threw his script away a long time ago and just waited to get the pages the day of, <laughs> and he would learn his lines right before they shot. There's a great scene, there's a great moment, or great, uh, there's, a, there's a good moment in um, the documentary where you're watching Jack go over his lines with his kind of acting coach and the camera kind of pans over that's in the, in the kind of the kitchen area pans over and Duvall's going over her lines with her acting coach. And you're just hearing like the shotgun sound effects of Kubrick, just typing on the typewriter <laughs> in the room. It's, <laughs> it's insane. Um, 
so and while uh uh kind of while it sounds crazy i mean it's like you know they're learning their lines like right beforehand it somewhat makes sense because the amount of takes they did um they could learn it probably over time uh and <laughs> as you don't know spoiler alert it was a lot of takes um the film's production would shoot six days a week with many days going to 16 hour days Ugh. Uh, the scene between Danny Lloyd and Scatman Crothers talking about the shine took several days and was shot over a hundred times. I believe I have heard 140 times um, the scene in itself uh, for his next film, Bronco Billy directed by Clint Eastwood Crothers actually broke down into tears when Eastwood moved on after one take shocked that he wouldn't have to do it more than once. <laughs> Uh, apparently one of the film shots set the, set the uh, Guinness book of world records for the most takes of any shot. And that shot would be when Shay Duvall is bat walking backwards up the stairs with the bat. Uh, the final tally for it was 127 times. Wow. Uh, the big reason why they kept going over and over again with it was Kubrick didn't think Duvall looked terrified enough. So like when you watch that scene, knowing that, like she looks exhausted. I says, mm-hmm. "Well, she looks exhausted and terrified too." But it's the same when she's like, "I just want to go back to my room." Is like what she mm-hmm. says. I'm not thinking straight. I'm tired. I'm like, that's probably all true. Yeah, like that's that probably out. just that's just Shelley Duvall talking is what kind of feels like. Um, and so f- infamously, uh, over the years, the working relationship between Duvall and Kubrick has been widely talked about. Most of this, I believe, has risen because of some of these documentaries where you see Duval and Kubrick having moments of disagreement with Kubrick becoming agitated with her over lines or missed entrances or just kind of creating a very toxic environment with her um, with kind of shout. The one big scene is like shouting at her because she didn't she missed her entrance when walking out the door in the snow when the snow was all going off and it, it, we had the re- re- reset. Or she was kind of debating about certain lines she was saying, and he wanted her to say it a certain way. Um, and Duvall states on the documentary that she was physically ill for months due to the stress of playing the role of Wendy. You also see her actually having to lie on the ground uh, on set due to exhaustion. Uh, and she would comment on another occasion in the documentary about how her hair was falling out um, when they were shooting the scene uh, when Jack is trying to acts through the door the door that she's when she's locked in the bathroom um as i said too that there's been talk over the years believing kubrick's kind of drove her uh to a place of almost insanity a lot of people tend to point to duvall's 2016 episode on dr phil uh which is kind of a despicable and disturbing portrayal of her mm-hmm. uh people use like evidence of how bad kubrick treated her on the set um and to go with that, to kind of counter that, in 2021, uh, just last year, the Hollywood Reporter did like a fat- uh, the Hollywood Reporter did a fantastic article on Duvall and her legacy. Um, writer Seth uh, Amrovich went to her home in Texas, talked with her about her career, and specifically talk about The Shining. She reveals that right before filming the movie, her longtime boyfriend and famous musician Paul Simon broke up with her as she was about to board the plane to England for the film. And she said she spent the entire time crying on the plane, which was just a warm up for the actual shooting of all of her crying. Um, when talking about Kubrick at this point, she stated that he could have a mean streak in him, but that he was very warm and friendly to her, saying he would spend a lot of time with her and Nicholson talking to them for hours while the crew would wait for them uh, on set. 
famed actress Angelica Houston, who was uh, Nicholson's partner at the time, paints a little bit of a different picture. She said that it seemed they weren't that sympathetic to her and that it was a kind of a bit of a boys club. She said when she saw her on set, Duvall seemed shook up. Um, Vivian Kubrick, Stanley's daughter, would also say something similar in an earlier interview saying Duvall received no sympathy at all from anyone, which was apparently one of her dad's tactics in making Duvall feel isolated in hopes of helping her with her performance. Uh, at some point in the 90s, Duvall would actually tell critic Roger Ebert that it was unbearable because of the long hours and her being forced to cry every day. Um, Houston, along with others on set, Howard would state that Duvall was dedicated to her work. While Nicholson uh, ran an apartment in London where he stayed at with Houston and her daughter, which was about an hour away, Duvall actually ran a place right by the studio, wanting to be closer to the production and not be distracted by a life in the bigger city, it seems. Um, Houston stated that she was terribly dedicated and didn't want to shortchange herself or anyone by not giving over fully to her commitment. In other interviews, Kubrick would apparently speak highly of Duvall's abilities as an actress, saying he was incredibly impressed with her performance in the film. Uh, someone who did not have a difficult time on set, however, was Danny Lloyd, uh, who plays Danny. Mm -hmm. uh, Leon Vitale, who helped find Danny, was the one who coached him throughout production. You can actually see in a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff of Vitale like, running around with Danny. Um, Vitale, Kubrick, and others were able to actually hide the fact uh, the film was a horror film from Danny. Um, they would not show him all the horrific elements they were shooting. Uh, and Danny would later say in life that he would not find out it was a horror film till he was much older. Uh, he even, I think he said he, he only, he thought it was just a drama about a family living in a hotel. Uh, and even after the film's release, I think they gave him a kid friendly version of the movie, <laughs> which was allegedly only 10 minutes long is what it was. Um, Another person who had a fun time on set was Tony Burton, who was only in one scene. Uh, but while Burton was on set, he brought his chess set to the film in hopes of having a game with someone during breaks. Uh, when Kubrick found this out, he would call off filming for the rest of the day and engage in several games with Burton. Uh, Burton would only beat Kubrick once, yet Kubrick thanked him for playing because it had been a long time since he had played against someone such a, such played against someone as challenging as Burton uh, in terms of an opponent. Um, my last story kind of on the set real quick that I find funny deals with Jack Nicholson chopping down the door. Um, mm -hmm. Initially the props department built a fake door for Nicholson to chop through. Um, but apparently they didn't know that Nicholson had served as a volunteer fire marshal, fire marshal earlier in his life and had great experience with an ax. So the first take when he has to chop the door, he just tears through it with ease so the prop department had to build a stronger door so Nicholson couldn't break through it as, as easily. You know, talking about the camera work in this movie, I just absolutely love the way they the follow his, his, yeah, God. follow the axe every time he's he's chopping the door. It's insane how fast that camera's moving for that scene. And not losing focus. Like, it, it's, mm -hmm. it's with it the entire time. Yep. So, let's move on to the reception of this film. Because, like another one of Kubrick's most praised films... 2001 Space Odyssey, The Shining was misunderstood in its first run. Uh, the film opened on Memorial Day weekend in 1980 on 10 screens in New York and Los Angeles with plans to release nationwide within the month. Also that same weekend was Empire Strikes Back, <laughs> which is why it was only given kind of a limited release at first, not a major one. 
the poster to promote the film was created by famous graphic designer Saul Bass, who did kind of the the psycho opening in North by Northwest. Mm-hmm. Apparently, he did over 300 designs before Kubrick approved the poster. Um, reviews began to trickle in after the film's premiere on May 23rd, 1980, and they were very much mixed. Hmm. Fame critics Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel actually would not review the film on their television show, which at that time was called Sneak Previews. Mm-hmm. Um, Siskel would give the film two stars, saying it was a crashing disappointment, and that it contained virtually no thrills. Pauline Kale would echo this sentiment, saying <laughs> that the movie the movie leads us to expect something, almost promises it, and then disappoints us. It also seems the cast was a little upset with the film's reception, but for different reasons. Apparently, Duvall and Nicholson were upset that when people reviewed the film, they mostly talked about Kubrick's direction, very rarely commenting on their performances or other aspects of the film. Um, as I said earlier, um, the ending was different from the actual script, so Scatman Crothers was actually kind of unhappy with how his character ended. Um, and it's unclear if those scenes were shot, but under his, he was under the pressure when he got on the project that he was the hero of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, Carrier Diane Johnson also had comments about the final product, claiming that Kubrick cut many of Duvall's lines, resulting in her, in her just being seen as a crying woman. Uh, she also said the reason why Kubrick killed off the character of Dick was because it was a horror film and they needed at least one kill in the movie. Um, also, uh, if you didn't know, Stephen King hated the movie. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, um, I won't spend that time on that one. He didn't like it. Plain and simple. Um, after a week after a week of the film's run, Kubrick actually would make a quick re-edit of the film, cutting off the film's epilogue scene, showing Wendy in a bed at a hospital with Mr. Ullman, the hotel manager, explaining to her that Jack's body had not been found, and that Mr. Ullman also gives the yellow tennis ball that Jack was throwing against the wall to Danny. Hmm. That's a that's a that's a weird souvenir to Yeah, to give. Yeah. So Diane Johnson reveals that Kubrick wanted to keep this in the film because he wanted to have somewhat of a happy ending for Wendy and Danny showing them get away. Um, But Johnson actually wanted to be even, even more tragic proposing to kill off Danny in the film's finale. Um, Duval was one of the only people who didn't like the hospital scene was cut from the final film, feeling it actually explained some of the important things in the movie um, with the family. Uh, the film would become the first film since Killer's Kiss that Kubrick did that did not receive either an Oscar nomination, Golden Globe nomination, or a BAFTA nomination. Uh, however, it would receive two, no- receive two nominations, the first ever Razzies, for Worst Director and Worst Actress. And the Razzies suck, in case you didn't know. Yeah, I'll that's, that that's right an absolute now. travesty. Yeah. Um, but the film would become a box office success, grossing $44 million against its $19 million budget. I think because of its kind of being successful at the box office, uh, the film would be reappraised as years went on. Uh, today is considered by many by one of the greatest horror films of all time and one of Kubrick's best. Many would also, again, the, the critiques, if it was about performance-wise, crit- uh, criticized Duvall's performance in the movie but now people are kind of reappraising her work in this, saying it's one of her best. There's a in that Hollywood Reporter article, it's there's kind of a moment when the when the writer they're talking about The Shining, and she says like, "Oh, I would love to see that again one day." Shelley Duvall says that, and she asks to see the scene when she's backing up the stairs during that big kind of moment, 
and she starts crying after watching it talking about how good it is and how scary jack is and how she kind of can't fathom what it would be like to be a woman or she thought so she, she thought about all the women who had dealt with similar situations hmm. as wendy does in this movie kind of going back to the heart of this film saying it's not really about ghosts and and the usual way but it's about this strained relationship in this family and this abusive relationship in this family in some way um so yeah that's the shining there's more of this episode guys just so you know it's not just the shining um <laughs> any last comments on the shining before i move on to the next movie thomas um i think i think we may have covered it we didn't, okay, we cool. didn't dig too deeply if you came for the conspiracy theories you know no i'm not doing that just have to go somewhere else but <laughs> yeah it's you could just you could fall down an endless rabbit hole of of what people think this movie there's is about but you know that's just what happens when you leave things a little open-ended but yeah. Like I said, I think this is really one of those movies where where less is more. Um, yeah, you you it, there's there's so many different interpretations, and it's not it's not like it's intentionally vague. Like the groundwork is laid, like we've been talking about for this idea of you know is it a family drama? Is it a supernatural film? It's it is all mm -hmm. of these things. But like, what ultimately is driving this? And I think that's a that's a great question to leave unanswered. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and last thing talking about because again the stuff that's kind of un unanswered it's the things with like the Grady twins or whatever like it's like there's just enough in there to just like show them but not go fully they're just they're creepy enough mm -hmm. um and also i i, I see now i should mention because i think my mom be upset if i don't but the red rum sequence with danny is just great and tony, i guess tony's the one doing red rum yeah tony like, tony's trying to warn her like he's, yo he's... get out of here <laughs> They're about to red rum you, okay? Get the hell out of here. Mm -hmm. um, but no, it's like, yeah, it's like, but that's just eerie enough to be like, what is going on? And again, like Tony or Danny grabbing the, the, the knife and like, and the, the red lipstick. But so, yeah. So after that, um, again, because Shining was a financial success, Kubrick began kind of working on his next movie. And while working on The Shining, Kubrick actually talked with Diane Johnson, the right, the co-writer with him, that he was interested in making another war film. He always loved tackling genres. And when he saw apparently uh, Apocalypse Now by Francis Ford Coppola, which was released mm -hmm. in 1979, he felt it, it was a challenge to make his war movie now about the Vietnam War. Um, he soon began talking with author Michael Hare, who had written a Vietnam War memoir called Dispatches. They discussed initially making a Holocaust movie together, but Kubrick soon told him he was more interested in tackling a war film. Uh, Air uh, had experience with some screenwriting by writing several of Martin Sheen's monologues in Apocalypse Now, hmm. um, which is why he kind of talked with him. Uh, Kubrick would then soon discover a novel called The Short Timers, The Short Timers by Gustav uh, Hasford. Uh, Hare would read it, calling it a masterpiece, and Kubrick would call it a unique, absolutely wonderful book. And he specifically loved the film's dialogue or the the, uh, the novel's dialogue. Uh, he would then begin researching the Vietnam War, consuming documentaries, photographs, newspapers, etc. And 1985, Kubrick would contact Hasford about getting him to join Michael Hare and him in adapting the novel. Um, Hasford and Kubrick would talk multiple times a week over the phone. Um, in a similar fashion, Diane Johnson, however, uh, Kubrick and Hare would work in London every day at his home. 
breaking down the treatment that Kubrick had written for the movie. Um, Hare would actually write the first draft of the film, uh, and not long after that, Kubrick would change the name of the film to Full Metal Jacket after seeing the phrase in a gun catalog. And quickly, Thomas, what is Full Metal Jacket about? Uh, Full Metal Jacket is a Vietnam film that yeah. follows uh, Joker, a, a Marine who goes through training at Paris Island and then ultimately becomes a a war correspondent for a a, a government run military newspaper yeah and gets embedded with some troops in Vietnam as yeah. as part of an assignment yeah that, does that, movie, cover that cover yeah, that covers it yeah <laughs> and the movie kind of feels like two different movies yes some people will say uh and i feel like that might actually come from the writing because when after the first draft of the film, uh, Kubrick would talk with Hare and Hasford over the phone, giving them notes and tasks to do tasks to do with the script. Uh, Hare and Hasford would then write their own versions of the film before mailing them to Kubrick, who would then read and edit the scripts along with his to make the script for Full Metal Jacket. So it feels like a Frankenstein of a script. Um, Hare and Hasford did not know how much would be used from their scripts. And this would later lead to a dispute in the film's screenplay credit. Kubrick wanted to meet Hasford, but Hare was against it, saying, let's not meet him. He he could be crazy. Um, <laughs> but once Kubrick did meet Hasford, he, it did not go well, and they would never meet again, it sounds like. Hmm. Um, as the script was shaping up, Kubrick would begin researching for his cast, begin searching for his cast. This was the 1980s, so when Warner Bros. did a massive casting call for the film, they used videotape auditions for the soldiers. This is a benefit for Kubrick since he was in London at the time, and auditions were mainly happening in the States. They would audition about 3,000 people, which were cut down to 800 for Kubrick to review. When it came to the role of Joker, Kubrick initially, Kubrick initially offered the role to Anthony Michael Hall. Uh, mm. According to Hall, they spent eight months, eight months negotiating his fee and contract before finally all of a sudden negotiations fell apart. Stanley would then consider Val Kilmer for the role, uh, while also offering the role to Bruce Willis, who would turn it down due to moonlighting. Uh, eventually, Kubrick would offer the role of Matthew or role to Matthew Modine, who had starred in several films at that point, including Robert Altman's adaptation of Streamers, uh, also Birdie and Vision Quest. Um, Modine's casting would then lead to another important casting decision with Vincent D'Onofrio. Vince D'Onofrio had, had known Modine through their through the theater scene in New York. Um, by the time D'Onofrio was actually working as a bouncer at the Hard Rock Cafe, uh, <laughs> when Modine saw him there and Modine said, hey, I'm doing this movie with Stanley Kubrick. You should submit a tape, uh, which D'Onofrio did. And later on, I think Modine like, went and spoke with Kubrick. He's like, Yo, my guy, my guy Vince D'Onofrio would be great for Gomer Pyle. Uh, <laughs> and after four auditions, D'Onofrio got the role. Now, the script was initially written for a scrawny redneck character, Gomer Pyle, but mm. Kubrick thought it'd be better if he was overweight and clumsy. So D'Onofrio would then gain 70 pounds for the role, which is apparently a record, beating out De Niro's record for Raging Bull. Oh, man. Which, like... I feel like it's saying a lot for like a first time at like a first, yeah. like it's not, it's not his debut film, but it's like a second movie. And he's like, I'll gain 70 pounds for this movie. <laughs> I'm just an unknown actor. Screw mm -hmm. it. What, what's going to happen? Um, 
the next important part would not be cast until close to production. Um, actor and former Vietnam War veteran Arlie Ermey was hired to be a technical advisor on the film, but he wanted to play the role of Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. Um, Kubrick had already cast the role, and, it's, and he, had, he had seen Ermey in a previous war movie, The Boys in Company C, and he felt that Ermey wasn't vicious enough to play <laughs> <What>? Hartman. <laughs> Army uh, would take it upon himself to make his own audition tape um, to prove that he could do it. While testing out some of the actual Marines to see if they could be background extras in the film, Army began hurling insults at them, all while being recorded. Um, Kubrick would watch the tape and realize that Army had to play the role. Um, he would then actually take the way take the role away from the other actor, Tim uh, Colsery who would eventually play the gunner on the helicopter that's shooting it. Oh, the gets up. Gets up. Yeah, some. that's, he was originally supposed to be uh, the sergeant. Before Army actually played the role, apparently Kubrick offered the role to Ed Harris, who turned it down, a decision which he later called foolish, uh, mm. Harris would say. Another actor that wanted to be in the film was Denzel Washington. He asked his agents to get get uh, the script sent to him from Kubrick, which his agents told him Kubrick doesn't send scripts. <laughs> um, and so that leads us to favorite scenes. So Thomas, or, or really just the movies, the movies core. Um, what's what's one of your favorite scenes in this movie? Or what are your thoughts? Um, well, you know, there's obviously the the whole discussion of is this is this two separate movies sandwiched together which which i think is just kind of driven by the fact that the gomer pile sequence is such a is 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 so much traditional storytelling like you know mm -hmm. there's there's foreshadowing and, and character development and and, and storyline and rising and falling action and all that and then the the second half is not as uh you know it's not as traditional it's not yeah it's not traditional yeah yeah and um and and this was actually this was just my second time watching this for uh -huh. for this uh rewatch and i found myself enjoying the second half a lot more than i had the first time i agree um i i really really enjoyed the final kind of sequence with the sniper i think yep. it is it's it's really really well done everybody in the cast is kind of great on display here adam baldwin's great in this movie he you know is, someone yeah. who someone who has worked really steadily his entire career but I, I don't like having watched this movie I, I you can imagine he would have gotten more work coming out of this yeah and not just like stargate um <laughs> but uh the way that that scene all plays out is very kubrick too because there is, i mean it's obviously a very hard-hitting scene it's it's high stakes it's high tension but there is this kind of like dark comedy to it you know it's just these mm -hmm. guys who are they're lost you know they, they just made one wrong turn and there's one person who is now picking them off one by one and nobody knows what's what to do yeah. it's all a mess and then you know ultimately the the reveal which i think you know as far as talking about kind of the foreshadowing and the planting and payoff of of the gomer pile sequence the 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 build and kind of payoff in in the second half is that we've seen them kind of you know we've seen them sexualize vietnamese women this whole movie mm -hmm. we've we've had interactions with with vietnamese with women kind of forced into sex work and and them kind of teasing them and mistreating them and then for the final kind of payoff of the climax of the film to be that it it is a woman who has been kind of slaughtering them one by one at the end of the movie is 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 very poignant 
Yeah, I never thought about it in that way, about connecting it to the first part of how how Hartman kind of insults him with that. Um, yeah, I think too. I noticed Joker's arc a lot more in this first and this and this time watching yes. it. Yeah, with I, the born I've to never, kill and the the yeah. peace sign and the and the born to kill helmet and and everyone always says, you know what, what does that mean? And he's like, I don't know. It's <laughs> don't the duality know. of it, man. It's the duality of it. I'm um, still trying to figure out what it all means. Like, why am I here? Yeah. Um. So this time, because I I've watched this twice before, I never really, I never really loved Full Metal Jacket. I'm still kind of, uh, I still find it a flawed movie. Um. But his Joker's arc is way more clear this time because the idea of like Kubrick was interested in kind of showing the evolution of a soldier Mm -hmm. of how you go from being trained to being a killing machine. And Joker is kind of the one soldier that keeps fighting back in some Mm -hmm. way of becoming a killing machine like and you're actually just seeing it kind of go on and on of him getting closer and closer to becoming someone who can kill is that you have he's the one who has like the he's the smart one of the of the of the of the group in the Mm -hmm. opening part he's the one who can who sees right through hartman and like if i change my answer you're gonna like get on me even more so there's there's a, it's no it's no win situation here right and he's yeah. like i like your son like mm-hmm. you're the new leader it's like it's like he has balls basically and and then you have him taking care of gomer pile and you see him have kind of like compassion for teaching pile how to like like to get your leg over the over the uh, climbing wall or how to do this how to do that and that first kind of break in the kind of armor with with joker is is when it's the the when they kind of hit him with all the soap it's the it's the um mm-hmm. the a blanket party is what it's called i believe mm-hmm. and you have that moment when cowboys like do it to to joker and joker hesitates and then he hits pile over a few times with it and that's like when pile realizes everyone hates him like i'm alone and he's isolated from the group and that's the beginning of Joker. Like he can go, he, he can be pushed mm-hmm. in a certain way. And then you see his arc as it goes on. Then by the end, when he's the one that has to shoot the Vietnamese soldier, the woman, um, it's the full arc of his character. He's yep. now become someone who can kill. Um, But my issue here with the movie is that I feel like out of all of Kubrick's lead characters, I feel like we're the most distant from Joker. I feel like this is one movie where I wondered if more narration would help us understand Joker a little Mm. bit more. Interesting. In the first watch. Like, I think you get it more and more as you go. I think it's there, but I wondered if, if you just got a little bit more of him, would we, would we, would we like be interested with interested more and following along with him in the second half? Yeah, uh, that's that's my I see that because it just feels like like you said that first part is just so like straightforward. Here's what we're doing. It's a, it could be a short film. It's so contained, and then the second part feels like of a different half. Yeah, and yeah, Joe, yeah. I mean it, it, the, the first part is so 
traditional. It might be yeah. one of the most traditional things Kubrick did in the later half of his career. Just yeah. the the arc for Gomer, he he hits this high, you know, the, in the they always say in in storytelling in the in the story map for yeah. a tragedy, you know, for a comedy you have like an all is lost moment and then you win. In yeah. a tragedy you have a, you know, I'm almost there moment and then yeah. and then you lose it all. And yeah. that, you know, Gomer he's finally the drill sergeant's finally proud of him. He's he's he tells him you're going to be a rifleman like you've really figured it out. And then they have the kind of the donut sequence and he everyone they turn everyone against him. Yeah. And if it was just like if he hadn't left his box locked that one time, yeah. you know, would it would it all have been OK? But um, well, I think some of the rifle stuff's after that. But yes, he's still like he, he, he Gomer Pyle is like becoming better. Yeah, because of Joker and everything like that, he's becoming a better, better soldier mm-hmm. at this point. Um, then he just yeah. gets pushed way too far. Yep. And um, and then you know you have the ultimate tragedy, but yeah, and then and then the second half is kind of meandering. It's kind of a slice of life, in the sense of of something like Mash almost, although definitely a little more violent and and kind of uh darkly comedic than Mash. But I mean that they are the those sequences with like like when they are when they're negotiating with the with the um sex worker and her like brother yeah. or whoever's trying to like pimp her out and oh, yeah. and you know the 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 get some get some, <laughs> oh, get some. yeah it's get a dark some. scene and, it's a dark scene yeah and you know and that's there's that it's that same kind of like gallows war humor as like catch 22 when he's like if they they what if they they if they run they're they're Viet Cong. if they yeah, stand it, still then they're Viet Cong undercover it's just no, like oh, oh, dude, they're, oh, they're well disciplined Viet yeah. Cong is what it is. Yeah. yeah, it's just like you just want to murder Kill. people constantly. Yeah. That's all That's you're here is. for. That's what it um, is. So yeah, you know none of none of his anti-war uh, sentiments are are, are 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 hidden in this movie for sure. Yeah. Um. Even though I I read that he he didn't plan on making an anti-war movie, he just wanted to make a war movie, and it comes out. Yeah, as an anti-war movie. Yeah, um, I don't think the guy who made Doctor Strangelove and Paths of Glory. I don't think he can make a neutral make a straight, war film. A straight war movie because I because I, it felt like I will say this. It felt like too with Joker, like almost like the most I, I feel I like the closest to Kubrick's views on the world mm-hmm. is what it feels like. Because there is like a again quoting certain lines here and there that Joker does, or whatever. It's very similar to like Kirk Douglas and Paths of Glory of how mm-hmm. he quotes uh as he quotes people talking about patriotism like it, it, it's they're in this same kind of dna thread in yeah, some way and, and joker himself has this kind of or at least likes to put on this kind of like amused indifference yeah that that you know you could uh, the kind of dark humor way of viewing it that that you could say has been the, the lens through which kubrick has approached yeah. a lot of that throughout his career yeah um, but he has this great again, similar to Doctor Strangelove. There is this satirical view of certain things. It's mm-hmm. the, I mean, the big one. It's the Mickey Mouse march at the yeah. end when they're these boys going back to camp with the fiery the fiery buildings of Vietnam in the background. And it's M I C K E Y M O U I C, and it's just it's a a dark, uh, comedic scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's also probably one of the the movie's most memorable moments is that that ending yep again with backtrack the bathroom scene again i just want to restate that it's just a perfect example just like pure tension 
Mm-hmm. And also great, great performance by both D'Onofrio and Modine and, or, and Ermy specifically. Yeah. Ermy's voice changes in the scene yeah. of how he goes from like, he goes from being the like, oh yeah, this. And then like, he just like, he brings it down an octave or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you see him, you know, when you're talking character beats, you see him realize what's going on, yep. get yep. scared, and then yep. have this moment of like, I'm going to pretend I'm not scared yep. to try and take control of this situation like he's great he really mm-hmm. is great like that's i think that's the thing, why that second half is just not not as memorable for most people is that ermy is fantastic and d'onofrio is fantastic yep. and yep. you take your two most interesting characters out out of like 35 minutes in the movie and you still have an hour and 20 left mm-hmm. like that's that's a that's an uphill battle as a watcher that's gonna be hard to do like I think the second half is just a well done. It's a well done movie mm-hmm. visually. I think the acting is great, but it's just so hard to compete with how good Ermi and D'Onofrio are in that first half, that first part. Yep. Um, but speaking of visually, there's a great, there's, they have a great, a lot of great long takes when they're running through the buildings um, in the end it's not when they get to the sniper one it's right before them mm-hmm. when they're like the camera's like carrying from person to person oh yeah as they're going mm-hmm. it's fantastic um and yeah so and you have this idea of like revolving door of soldiers every time someone gets killed someone like replaces them it's mm-hmm. like okay you're the leader now or you're the leader now and it, it's just really like whoever picks up the phone to talk to the to base camp is basically who's mm-hmm. the next leader that guy um so yeah but but yeah, the movie just, I think the movie, it just feels a little more distant than usual with the Joker character. And and Joker is just not as interesting to me as um, uh, Gummer Pyle and Hartman is the thing. Um, any other thoughts before we move on? No, just, I just, I, I definitely, I'm glad I revisited this one. This was one yeah. I kind of always wrote off as one of my lesser favorites of his and and we'll see when we get to our rankings it definitely we'll definitely moved itself up in my rankings i don't know if it did with me i think it's still the same but i think it's just because there's so much to compete with in this in this in the rankings here um so for production for the film uh it would start in august of 1985 lasting until august of the next year <laughs> um uh due to kubrick not leaving leaving england um and not wanting to fly uh living in england not wanting to fly the production took place not far from home uh they shot the barracks scene at a former royal air force station uh which is probably the easiest thing to fake in this movie the hardest thing however is vietnam um they would use england as a stand-in for vietnam uh production would use becton gasworks an an abandoned plant that was used for coil uh coal not coil coal and gas it opened in 1870 and was considered to be one of the one, considered to be the largest gas works in all of europe and one of the largest plants in the world until its closure in 1976 it's actually used in for your eyes only the james bond movie mm-hmm. the beginning with the blow you know the blowfeld like helicopter thing when yeah. bonds that's the same exact spot uh hmm. as the becton gas works Another reason why I shot this plant, according to Leon Vitale, was that it was actually built by the same architects who designed the city of Hue, Vietnam, the city the film was depicting, uh, for, or the, the city that the film was depicting. Um, the, so it has like kind of like French architecture in it, and it was just it was very similar to the actual city. Um, since the plant was due for demolition, Kubrick's production designers would blow up several buildings, toppling them over to look like a city that has been through a war. 
Um, however, the gas works would prove to be a toxic environment for the crew, not because of people, but because of, of, of asbestos and hundreds of other chemicals uh, in the actual buildings. Uh, Modine says they shot the Vietnam War scenes first before the boot camp scenes due to him having his hair in those scenes. But soon those scenes would begin to overlap, causing him to wear a wig throughout many of those scenes in the back half. Um, when it comes to acting for the film, some would say that Kubrick let one of his actors ad lib, and that was Arlie Ermey. Uh, they say that Kubrick planned on writing dialogue for him, but he soon realized that Ermey had a great ability to come up with a variety of insults and ad libs. Um, <laughs> however, Ermey has claimed that Kub or Ermey had claimed that Kubrick actually helped him mold the script to his liking. So they actually worked together on the lines. I'm not sure which one's true. Uh, Kubrick also separated Ermey from the rest of the cast while filming because he wanted them to be surprised by Ermey on set. Um, also Kubrick's assistant, Leon Vitale, uh, worked with Ermey constantly getting him prepared for the role, helping him memorize lines and get the pacing of it down. When talking about acting for Kubrick, Vincent D'Onofrio would say that Kubrick wanted you to know your lines and not bump into the furniture. Uh, but he knew what a good performance was and what wasn't, he, but he would usually give direction along the lines of do it better, do it more interesting, faster, slower, things like that. Um, while production was going on, Kubrick actually wrecked an SUV while going on a location scout with director of photography, Douglas Milsom and Arlie Ermey. Ermey recalls Kubrick was distracted because he was describing the location they were driving by and how they were going to shoot it when he drove into a ditch, flipping the car over. Uh, Army said without missing a beat, Kubrick got out of the car and continued describing how they would shoot the scene, <laughs> not even talking about the wreck they were just in. And either in that wreck or a separate wreck, Army like broke his ribs or something in, a, in, a, in the wreck at one point and was out for a few months from shooting because of it. Um, in his memoir, in his memoir, uh, Matthew Modine recalled a day where he asked Kubrick's permission to leave set because his pregnant wife was scheduled to have a C-section. Kubrick didn't want him to leave set, saying he'd just pass out from seeing blood and he'd get in the way of the doctors. <laughs> Modine then threatened to cut his hand so that he would be taken to an the hospital so he could see his wife. So Kubrick relented and let him go see the birth of his child. Um, production would wrap in august 1986 like i said but the film would not be released until a year almost a year later taking a year to edit uh the film was released on june 26 1987 become a critical becoming a critical and financial success it would gross a total of 46.4 million at the box office at its initial run it was critically loved but some said it was inferior to previous vietnam war movies like platoon which just released a year before um and then apocalypse now a few years before that Famed critic Roger Ebert gave the film 2.5 stars out of four, calling it a collection of short stories and a strangely shapeless movie. Um, this would actually cause one of one of Ebert's famous arguments with his at the movies partner, Gene Siskel, with <laughs> Siskel criticizing Ebert for liking Benji the Hunted, a family dog movie, I believe, over Full Metal Jacket. Have you seen that, Have you seen that one? Benji That's the Hunted? No, no, the, the, oh, the episode. Them. Yeah. Um, I don't think I have actually. You know yeah, what? I, it's, it's great because, like, basically, see, Gene's just like, you gave Benji four stars. He goes, well, that's a different argument, Gene. Yeah, like he's yeah. he's he's like that movie's not trying to be Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, <laughs> he's ba he's basically saying that you you judge movies differently based on what based they're on, trying. to Yeah, be. based on their intention. Yeah, yeah that's, that's like, Ebert's 
you would do that several times is be like yeah. you know i think this movie i don't like this movie but it did what it intended to do and i respect that whereas yes. siskel was like siskel had a scale and everything yeah, everything went on that same. scale yes, saturday exactly. night fever was at the top and, ev- and everything else was <laughs> inferior to saturday night fever did he give saturday night fever four stars he or, was obsessed he... with saturday was night he fever really? oh yeah that that was like in his mind that was like the pinnacle of film. the perfect movie <laughs> john Badham's saturday night fever oh man uh yeah it's great look it up because because he's like you know well you know well that's a different argument gene <laughs> like he's just so upset um full metal jacket would end up being nominated for one oscar best adapted screenplay which is credited to kubrick michael Hare, and gustav hasford uh hasford got his lawyers involved after he found out he would only get additional dialogue credit instead of screenplay by credit uh and it would eventually be given he'd be given kind of full credit by before the film's release um so yeah, and today Full Metal Jacket, some would say, is a one of the best war movies, and like I said, some would also call it inferior to other war movies of the time. Hmm. And I think it's it's somewhere in there. Yeah. It's like I think it's I think it's not it's not Apocalypse Now. I think you could argue with Platoon. I don't. I, know I like it better than Platoon. I'm not a big Oliver Stone guy. We've we've discussed we've this before, at least in person. This. Yes, we have. Um, last comment on on uh, Full Metal Jacket for moving on. Apparently, for Adam Baldwin's character, Animal Mother, um, they they considered uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger for the role, hmm. but he turned it down to be in Running Man. No, so okay. I feel like it would be a much bigger role if he would have done that role. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the ending changed. The ending initially had so the ending has um, uh, Joker killing the woman, and then like man, that's hardcore. Like calling him like kind of how badass he is for doing mm-hmm. it the initial ending i believe was adam baldwin animal mother chopping off the head of the woman and basically holding it saying like this is difficult that wasn't difficult at all this is this is like what a real person does uh, or like what a real kind of like soldier would do mm. and kubrick realized that like that was way too violent yeah. and they said that he he had become more aware of violence in his movies after a clockwork orange and how he had to ban the movie mm. in england and that's why that scene was cut and a lot and some of the other violent scenes that were in the movie originally were cut because of yeah. of that i do think i do think there's something more poignant about you know animal mothers like all in favor of just leaving her and letting her bleed out yeah and and even he's kind of like taken aback by joker shooting her point well, he blank does. yeah it's yeah it's it's shocking it should be shocking for him mm-hmm. um and so after that movies released in 1987 uh cooper would take a very long break yes um and we'll go through this pretty quickly because we've covered this movie before and thomas did very in-depth research on yes. this movie so i don't want to kind of we've got we've got much. another 90 minutes on this movie yeah, uh, go, yeah, go in, back, yeah. in the backlog if you're in the backlog if you're it's, it's from february of this past year uh, i think it's episode 201 so go check it out but we talked about eyes wide shut so he would it would take him i mean he wouldn't make a movie until 99 with eyes wide shut it would be about it'd be 12 years um and he would be trying to make he'd be trying to make a lot of different movies until this one um but eyes wide shut was also one he had been trying to make for a long time you you had said like he'd been looking at since 1968 i even found the one thing where like it might have been even earlier if the spartacus rumor of him having to read it for group therapy with kirk douglas is true either way he read it in the 60s at some point uh and became obsessed with it i think you talked about how as early as then in the 70s he was 
quoted in Variety and other articles saying, like, I'm making this movie, Trom Novell, which is the story that it was based off of next. And mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, and he, it never he, wanted, he wanted Peter Sellers at one point. It was, it was Martin, just always Woody Allen, a lot yeah. of different people. It's um, always getting kicked around. And then finally in the 90s, he had uh, Frederick Raphael um, to to write an adaptation of it with him. So, so Thomas, what is Eyes Wide Shut about? briefly eyes wide shut is about a a a hot young doctor who's got kind of a a picture perfect life in new york but it finds out during an evening uh marijuana smoking session with his wife that she once had a fantasy about cheating on him and it sends him into this spiral of 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 toxic masculinity where he is determined to go out and have an affair to to get even uh, which leads him into a a possible uh, sex cult and and, and, a, and a murder mystery revolving around this this sex cult that he has discovered yeah so let's talk briefly about this movie in terms of what we like about it so i i i've liked this movie i've always mm-hmm. liked this movie with eyes wide shut because it has that dreamlike quality which is what he was going for yeah um and i think i mean we talked about how like it was supposed to be a comedy mm-hmm. and how like if you read it as a straight drama you're probably gonna hate it but yeah. if you read it as this like weird dream comedy it's fantastic yeah and i and i think that's even more clear i, I know i said in the last episode we did on this that the first time i i had watched it kind of on my own i i came at it i hadn't seen all of of Kubrick's stuff you know I've seen The Shining I'd seen 2001 and I'd yeah. seen Dr. Strangelove but I'd kind of put that out of my mind as I approached you know this was supposed to be his last film and his mysterious masterpiece and I, and I watched it as something like 2001 yeah. and was like oh, I don't I don't yeah not not for me and not then you know our friend Freddie told me Oh, you have to watch it as a comedy. And when you come to it as, oh, this is the guy who did Dr. Strangelove. And and especially in this rewatch we did this month, you know, just finding that comedy in everything that he did. Yeah. He, he gets held up as this mysterious Kubrickian, uh, you know, everything's obsessed with art, not box office. Yes. Like yes. <laughs> and hidden messages and everything's vague for a purpose. And yeah. And then you come back to it and he was like, no, he had, this guy had a distinct sense of humor to yeah. almost all of his work. And, and this one especially. And it's based on a book called Dream Novel. Like it is yeah. supposed to be this kind of waking dream. And it is supposed to be ridiculous that this man is so insecure in himself and in his masculinity that his wife just saying she was attracted to another guy like sends him spiraling. Yeah. Um, and and there there is so much in here that is meant to be funny that it's yeah. it's kind of hard for me to look back now and see how poorly I read it the first time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, don't worry, I'm a doctor. Is the thing <laughs> wherever he goes, don't worry, I'm a doctor. Yeah. Um, and every woman is just obsessed with him. Yes, it's 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 fantastic. Um, and I was talking about it's like it's his manhood's being tested all night essentially, and. And and you have like it's again you talked about like I remember we we talked about the um uh the closest he kind of comes to having sex is uh like ends up finding out that, like she had an STD or what it's like very mm-hmm. much like they're like the biggest killer is like AIDS is the thing in the yeah. movie is is what talk kind of talks about it's it's a very yeah yeah if you if you if you read the story as that there was no murder that happened yeah no murder then, that happened then the the closest he was ever in danger was in almost having 
sex, sex with with a woman who was HIV positive without yeah. knowing. Without um, so yeah, it, it does it does have a lot. Of, you know, Kubrick always had something to say about yeah. what was going on in the world, and and he yeah. and he slips it in there. And there's also you know there's also a a kind of satire satirical look at at the upper crust and the and the yes. rich and and these kind of disgusting older rich men who feel the need to you know they can't just hire a, a, a sex worker they feel the need to like put on all this pop and circumstance to make it feel different when they're ultimately yeah. just you know spending time with with new york street prostitutes regardless yeah. <laughs> um but when tying this back to kind of other stuff too on top of all that it's like you have the thing of like it's not all it's cracked up to be in a way. Yes, absolutely. When when when, when Cruz goes out into New York and it's the like again, I think it's fine when he goes to like the the Nick Nightingale at the club when he's just like, come on, give me the give me the give me yeah. the number, give me the address. I, I want to go to it. Yeah. And then he's it's gonna be like a fun like fun party, and it's like, oh no, this yeah. should be crazy. Yeah. Like, and you get that you know you get that scene when he finally comes home and is just exhausted. And yeah. just breaks down to Nicole Kim, and it's just like, <laughs> I don't know what I thought I wanted, but I don't want any of that. <laughs> I don't want any of that. I thought, I, yeah, it's it's great. And I also feel like I remember when, when we watched it. It's like, I think kind of visually and like just mood wise, it felt the closest to The Shining, if I remember correctly. Like just like the terms of like how it, like the kind of overall mood. It's not mm-hmm. not fully. It's just very atmospheric because of the dreamlike quality. Mm-hmm shining kind of has that compared yeah, to and it does works. it does have this the way that he kind of floats in and out of these these yes. other people's lives and everything kind of happens to him it does yep. have this feeling of like another power and control and you know it never yes. goes into that but we also talked i think in the last episode you'll have to go listen if you want more details but there are kind of these recurring like numbers and images and things that make it seem like he's being manipulated even though kind of the ultimate reveal is like maybe he wasn't maybe he was um but yeah it, it does have this he he has this feeling of a man who is not in control and is and is kind of floating through from from one occurrence to the next and ex- just kind of experiencing what life throws at him yeah and like he said it's like what was it a dream was it not a dream like jack and shining were they were there ghosts were there not ghosts it's like it's the questionable things that the ambiguity in it all um notorious of the film took 400 production days to shoot <laughs> as you as we talked about again hellacious set they're in england had, they fired a few actors hired actors they went back and forth a lot of different things again go check out episode 201 to get more details about this uh reception wise um well before the movie was ever released sadly Kubert would pass away um i think a few days after his showing the first cut is what it was to mm-hmm. warner brothers and to Cruise and all of them um, he would pass away due to a heart attack, which people believe some people believed it could have been because of because of uh, uh, the stress of doing Eyes Wide Shut. Who knows? But he was 70 years old. Um, uh, and not long after so that was March 7, 1999, six days after Eyes Wide Shut was shown, uh, Eyes Wide Shut would then be kind of taken over by Leon Vitale and some other people to kind of help complete the movie. Um, which was released on uh, June, July sixteenth, nineteen ninety nine, prime, uh, uh, prime summer release. And I think mm-hmm. if we talked about correctly is that he had done the Cooper kid like looked at all the dates to yep. determine when was the best. Again, 
box office day. Yep. Like he was looking for money, guys. He requested um, the studio's records on on their yeah. releases to find like what was the best summer release. He had yep. cast obviously two of the hottest actors in the world. Yeah, and he he wanted to he wanted to make a splash. Yeah, and I feel like now like Christopher Nolan basically said I'm gonna take that date <laughs> all the time. Yeah, and do it right there. Um. And I, and I think even just Nope recently did that, did that date uh, mm-hmm. for Jordan Peele um, around that time. Um, so yeah, when the, but the film was released and it was very much mixed, I think because of it being Kubrick's last film, it was the two of the biggest stars. There were so many rumors about like the, the, like the possible sex that was going to be had with the Kid, Kidman and Cruz on set. Yeah. And yeah. Always basically things. built up to be a porn by, by oh, the yeah, rumors going around. Yeah, and it ended up being none of that. It ended up being just this dreamlike movie that could be a comedy, could not be a comedy. <laughs> um, and people were very mixed on it. But then again, like everything else with Kubrick, around as time went on, people began to relook at the film and see it for what it was. Some might say it's maybe his most misunderstood film. Um, and again, in a very similar fashion to 2001 or Barry Lyndon or The Shining, they developed an audience and appreciation over time. Mm-hmm. And so with all that, he made only 13 films in his career, but possibly considered by one of the best careers of any filmmaker. He did, however, have, have a lot of unrealized projects that I want to shout out real quick. One being AI, artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. uh, that ended up being uh, directed by Steven Spielberg and co-written by Steven Spielberg. Um, he was supposed to do Napoleon for a very long time. Uh, I think at one point John Kelly kind of talked him out of it saying like, look, man, a lot of people have done Napoleon. Don't do Napoleon. <laughs> you don't need to do it. Um, they're still talking about them doing it. it. At one point Spielberg was in, in, in contact with the, the, the Kubrick family to develop as a TV series. Um, some have done it as like a, a stage version. So a lot of different things. Um, that was when he tried to do. He also was going to do one called the Aryan Papers, which was going to be about the Holocaust. Um, uh, he'd always kind of t- was talking about doing a Holocaust movie for years. Um, he, he, we, I said it before, Full Metal Jacket. He discussed it with with uh, Michael Hare about mm-hmm. doing one, um, but he never did. At one point, I think he was talking about doing Schindler's List, or I think after Schindler's List, he kind of stopped doing it because Spielberg had kind of made the Holocaust movie he was wanting to make um he there's a several other i we talked about some other ones he did like uh in the early days of like um confederate guerrilla force or whatever or the uh the kind of uh the uh safe cracker those were all discussed about um but he had a lot of different stuff that some are i think now being found or are being re-looked at to be made into movies or tv shows and I feel like now it's gonna be like be like oh the movie that Kubrick never got to make is like the <laughs> the marketing for some of these things coming up I bet, um, but yeah so let's get into rankings and awards real quick Thomas, we'll we'll start with, we'll start with some of these so what what do you think is the best use of narration in a Kubrick movie? Hmm. Probably Clockwork Orange. I think Clockwork Orange as well. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's what's loaded with it, and I think it just adds so much to to Alex the largest yeah, character. I think it would be really hard to. I don't know that we root for Alex in this movie, but it would be really hard yeah. to follow Alex at all if we Without weren't given that narration. kind of glimpse into his brain. I agree. Um, best score in a Kubrick film. Um, are we talking original score? Or are we talking him any, using any, any, huh? Uh, 
probably Barry Lyndon. I think the use of oh. handles, uh, Sarah Band and Barry Barry Lyndon is is very good. I was I'm shocked by that. I, no, not 2001. Yeah, I, I, 2001 probably. If you had to make me pick like original score, it's probably the the monolith theme. Um, well, I think those are all. That's all pre-existing. I that's believe. existing as well. Yeah. Well, because that, that, I was going to bring it up here. Why, classical music this? professor is rolling in his grave. Um, no, he's he's still alive. I don't think he's. <laughs> um, I don't know. I haven't kept up with him, but I'm sure he's great. He was in good shape. Um, <laughs> no. Um, so apparently, uh, I, I I failed to mention this in part three. Um, is that Kubrick actually had them do a score for 2001. And apparently he disliked it. He's like, screw it. I'll just pick music that I like for the movie. So they actually did a score for the movie that he just did not like in the end. I believe it was, uh, um, I don't know who the, who the composer was. Um, but yeah, he wasn't a fan. Hmm. So you're going with Barry Lyndon. It's a good pick. I, I, I think, um, 2001 is the most memorable score maybe. Mm Mm-hmm. But I do agree that I think Barry Lyndon is more, I think, important to the story. And I just like the the specifically the Sarah Band that they keep bringing in. They use it over yeah. opening credits. They use mm-hmm. it when, through like we said last week, like the whole sequence when is leading up to his son's death. And I think the way that they kind of use it, and 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 he then does the same thing in Eyes Wide Shut. I think too very good. He's he's got kind of two. He's got a classical piece, and then mm-hmm. that that composition that's just the piano yeah, then, <laughs> over yeah. and over and over again. Yeah. But I, he, he uses it to a point where it can, anytime he brings it in, depending, it can be a comedic beat. It can be a foreshadowing beat. Like it just, yeah. it, he, it's, it, he just turns this existing piece of music into a blank canvas. It's kind of yeah. wild. Uh, best performance in a Kubrick film. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> I think oh, it's man. easy. It's, it's Peter Ustinov and Spartacus. No, I'm kidding. Um, who is great in Spartacus, but I would not put him as best. Oof, I don't know that I could pick one. Let's do, let's do three. Let's do three. Let's three. do top three. Let's do top three. Uh, Kirk Douglas, Paz of Glory. Ooh, okay. Nicholson, Shining. And Peter Sellers, Dr. Strangelove. Interesting. Interesting. I like those picks. If we were doing five, then I'd probably throw in Vincent D'Onofrio and maybe uh, no, Mal- no Malcolm McDowell for Clockwork Orange here. Ma- Malcolm McDowell would probably be my fifth one. Yeah, I, I, I think I think Shelley Duvall might might sneak up in there for me in that top five. I don't know who I take her out. I like I I just. When watching it now and finding out all I find out about that, and not just the way she, I think the way she was committed to the role is another thing, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know who I replace. I don't know who I replace, but all good performances. I think if I had to, I think if I had to pick one, I would okay. pick. You can replace Kirk Douglas. It's okay. I mean, I, I would replace Kirk Douglas probably at Pads of Glory with Shelley Duvall. But. <laughs> I think if I had to pick one, I think I might pick Malcolm McDowell. Wow. Okay. I don't know. I th- I feel like he. It's eh, or man, Harley Ermy. It's like it's, it's it's a difficult decision. <laughs> he got, I, he got I a think, lot of great performances. I, I think it's something like I like. 
who is synonymous with that role? Like when I think of mm-hmm. Malcolm McDowell, I only think of Clockwork Orange for the most part. Mm-hmm. When I think of er- Ermy, I only think of Full Metal Jacket. And that's why when I think like Shelley Duvall, I think she, the thing I always think about the most is The Shining. Mm. Jack can get anything is the thing, but Shelley Duvall is kind of in there is yeah. like her and that. Also too, I'm going to bring this up too, that everyone kind of forgets about. Not to, not to give anyone like to, to take away what happened on this production. She did this and did a Popeye right after this. <laughs> That's two hellacious sets back to back. Yep. That like we never talk about how like, it's like we always forget like oh yeah she did two movies away from home, <laughs> overseas that were bad that were like just terrible productions in some way. That was just a rough time for her in general. Um, and you guys decide um you know what email us email us who your favorite performance was in a Kubrick movie. At Cine- or uh, cinationpodcast at gmail.com. Um, okay, Thomas, the big question. How do you rank Stanley Kubrick's movies? Okay. From bottom to top. I, I don't want to be held to this forever. This is just... Yeah, it's just right now. Me right now. I do want to note that normally when we do these, it's around like like seven, six, and five. Then I'm like, <laughs> oh, like this is like anything below that. I yeah. could take it or leave it. Like here, it's like from maybe like nine on. Any yep. of them could change with each other yep i've got killer's kiss at the bottom yeah i have fear and fear and desire is my bottom one i did i, I, I did one. not watch yeah, fear, yeah, and desire as a, fear and desire but... is my bottom one killer's kiss um, is my is my next one but i've seen it a lot i almost want to re- i might switch it one day but yes killer's kiss is my next one too spartacus is 11 i have lolita at 11 i have lolita at 10 okay i have spartacus at 10 okay all right uh i had the killing at nine which is like wow not we're gonna be different <laughs> not a diss to the killing at all from okay. nine on like none of this is is meant negatively at all i agree all. i agree i agree nine is full metal jacket for me Ooh, okay strap in i told you it bumped up it bumped up a lot this this round um eight is clockwork orange eight is clockwork orange for me as well seven is full metal jacket Seven is Barry Lyndon for me. Six is Barry Lyndon for me. Six is Eyes Wide Shut for me. Six? <laughs> All right, strap in for this one. Five is 2001 A Space Odyssey. Wow, really? <laughs> Man, ho. Oh. Uh, five is The Killing for me. Okay. Uh, four is Eyes Wide Shut. Four is Dr. Strangelove for me. Three, I've got three for Doctor Strangelove. Okay. Uh, three, I have uh, Pads of Glory. I have Pads of Glory at two. Okay. Two for me is 2001 a Space Odyssey. And The Shining is number one. Number one. Okay. <laughs> that might be the the most, not divisive, but we're, we're, that's the most, that's the the biggest difference we've had in a lot of these yeah it's and it's and it's you know obviously i know the 2000 the the legacy of 2001 and it is a fantastic film but like when i started doing the list i think i kind of automatically put 2001 at like two and then i just kept looking at it i was like well i like this movie better than 2001 and i was like i like this movie better than 2001 (laughs) well here's the it's uh, yeah that's fair i 2001 it was tough because i was trying to judge like what is my favorite and what do I like? I think it's just insane cinematic achievement. Mm-hmm. And if like, if you're having like, Oh, if I'm going to watch a movie from Kubrick, it's 2001, my second choice. Probably not. 
but i think in terms of just like pure artistry it's it's hard i even like i even kind of play like in terms of like what's the best if i flip flop shining in 2001 but i just <laughs> love the shining way too much to do yep. it but yeah so well, that, that ultimately you know is the kind of as we've discussed this whole month that is kind of the duality of kubrick is like yeah high art versus genre yep appeal and and i think the shining captures that more than than anything else it is him making high art out of a stephen king novel yeah out of a paperback novel mm -hmm. basically um and it's it's done incredibly well all right so uh final questions uh what are kubrick's overarching themes and tropes thomas we we discussed a little bit at the top of the show but kind of mm -hmm. that idea of you know it's it's nothing new like we said to bring in the idea of wants versus needs but but kubrick seemed especially interested in this idea of your, your the thing that motivates you your ultimate goal mm -hmm. like realizing it and and being disappointed in it. almost like a monkey's paw kind of yeah. situation um that that was something that we see play out over and over and over again even you know going back to like the killing you know yeah. it's like i've got a suitcase full of money and instead of feeling happy about it i am so stressed yeah <laughs> um, and it's supposed to be a smash and grab job and everything's yeah. gonna be okay and then something yeah. happens and it does not yeah or uh, even killer's kiss you know i finally got the girl next door and now yeah and now look literally literally yeah literally have the girl next door and now i have to fight a guy with, an, with a bunch of mannequins around me yeah Really. Like, so so that was something that came up a lot and then obviously his kind of anti-war sentiment that that played into many of his films and and you really got his three war specific films passive glory dr strange love and full metal jacket all kind of approach it a different way you've got an, yeah. an out and out comedy farce you've got That's a true. just kind of straight up drama that is very passive glory is very open from the start with its yeah. anti-war sentiment and then you've got yeah full metal jacket that's trying you know it sounds Both. like he was trying to approach it fairly uh neutrally and just couldn't yeah. do it <laughs> and then even in barry linden you know you've got kind of some meditations on on how senseless war is yeah with larry so, just like where you're, you're walking in a field and getting shot yeah and that's that's what you're supposed to yeah. do and then your you know your your lifelong father figure just drops in front of you um, kiss me boy it'd be the last time i see you it's like what he said <laughs> So yeah, that that was something that that obviously came up for him a lot, and and then you know you've just like you said you've got this kind of recurring adaptation of novels, which is which yeah. is really interesting. Um, you know, IP is obviously hot, but but it was something that he preferred to kind of work off of, even if it was turning a a nonfiction book about how the nuclear holocaust could go down into a comedy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think ultimately it's that kind of like the monkey's paw, like mm -hmm. getting what you wanted to find out that it's not. And then and then this kind of anti-war, anti-violence, anti despite being someone who is perceived as showing a lot of violence. Um, yeah. But that 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 drove a lot of a lot of his thematic work. And and then one thing that he in terms of a trope that he does is like it's it. All these movies, like I said, are, do feel very novel-like. It has that novel approach to it. And it's interesting because, like, it a lot of movies are based on novels all the time. But this, like, it he he takes that structure and puts it into a film in a way. If it's if it's the kind of little adventures that Barry Lyndon goes on in Barry Lyndon, the kind of like traveling traveling rogue in a way, or mm. if it's kind of the divided sections of The Shining, or if it's 
full metal jacket feeling like a bunch of short stories as roger ebert would say but that narration a lot of times can tie things together and that was going into our next question what did you learn about kubrick this month is that i did not realize how much of narr- how much narration plays into a part yes. with a lot of his movies from absolutely the top to yeah and i and i think i always kind of thought of you know the kubrick and the and the the steadicam like you you yeah. think of the shining and the, and the steadicam and and to kind of see the evolution of the way he was initially moving the camera a lot and then kind mm-hmm. of moved back to being a little bit more static and then really wasn't until like the late 70s that he found kind of a a blend of both yeah and 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 to be able to see kind of the way he lit movies change and obviously yeah. a lot of his photographer background kind of lend itself to to his style um that that's something that i would not have been able to put together just kind of watching yeah each movie a couple of months apart yeah and here, here's one question what's his least kubrick movie spartacus okay i think i think spartacus visually from a storytelling point of view like there's nothing nothing uh subtle about spartacus in any way and man people love spartacus i was i, I, I it's actually it was actually playing at the the arrow mm-hmm. theater in la it was setting millimeter festival they're doing spartacus people really love it, it it's, I, I don't i don't think it's a bad it's movie bad. i just think it's not a kubrick movie it's not a kubrick film and it's i think it's flawed i think it's mm-hmm. a little too long um but yeah it's interesting going back through all this stuff because some of these movies i had not revisited in a long time mm-hmm. like a full metal jacket barely not only seen once before um and yeah you really get a sense that he i mean all of his movies for the most part outside of a few exceptions feel like him Mm -hmm. and once you hit that kind of run of strange love being kind of the transitional movie and then 2001 onward you know it's a kubrick film yep pretty easily um and it's he solidified himself in that short period with that run as one of the greatest filmmakers of all time yeah but i think that's it on stanley kubrick thomas I wow think we, we i didn't think we'd be able to tackle it when you when you proposed it yeah i was like guys let's kind of tackle stanley kubrick and i'm like it was gonna be difficult <laughs> i think we did it i think we did it yeah. um but that leads to next month a little bit different month next month thomas <laughs> we're doing a genre and we're gonna be doing what are we doing, Thomas? We're doing summer we're doing, movies. We're doing summer movies at the tail end of the summer for you guys. To to uh, it's August. You're still you're going to the pool for the last time. You're you're doing is that August these... is the dog days, right? Is it's the dog, dog days the end, yeah. or the dog days are like the height of summer? I think do- uh, now I'm I don't know what this that... up. What's the Florence Florence the Machine song do? The dog like, days what? are over. Oh, oh yeah. I don't know. Tell us. Um, but yeah, we'll find so it out next month. We'll find out next week. When we're looking at it. Um, but yeah, it's it's we're at the end of summer. It's it's getting really hot where you're where you're at. If you're in the south, it's getting really hot. If you're in London, it's probably getting really hot too. Um, but yeah, we're gonna be covering a lot of different movies about the summer experience. We're talking about Stand by Me next week. Following up with we following up with after that, Thomas. Everybody wants some exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. This is this is the reason why we're doing the month, because Thomas texts me saying, Yo, what can we do so I can talk about everybody wants some? Yep. I've got a full episode to offer the world. I don't <laughs> even know. Already... I haven't done my research, but I just feel like I've got a full episode to offer the world. If not, it's gonna be all opinion based. <laughs> we have a lot to talk about. We're gonna be following up with that with the sand lot, and then we're gonna be ending the month with dirty dancing starring patrick swayze and jennifer gray it's gonna be a great month 
please stay tuned. But that's all we have for you on this episode. If you have any questions for Thomas and me or any comments, suggestions, whatever, feel free to contact us at sinationpodcast at gmail.com. Send us kind words. We need it. Um, also, if you're a new listener or a fan of the show and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us yet, be sure to do so uh, so you can stay up to date on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast and if you haven't already, be sure to write us a review on your preferred podcast platform. You 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 want to give the podcast five stars. You've always given the podcast five stars. You've always <laughs> been the five-star reviewer of this podcast. <laughs> Nothing's changed. <laughs> then we should just fade fade the episode out on fade that the song. There, I think it's public. I think that song's in the public domain. We'll just do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, uh, and, uh, and finally don't forget to like and follow us on facebook twitter instagram tiktok thomas thank you for joining me as always thank you for pulling me down this kubrickian <laughs> rabbit hole it's been fantastic and thank you all for listening we hope you listen to more episodes soon bye